sermon just the beginning. Even though we are finishing the book of Mark, we're finishing our first year as a, as a congregation, this is barely scratching the surface of where we are going as a church. Um, and so this is just the beginning. This is, was just the beginning of, uh, of Jesus's reign. Um, you know, the death and the burial and the resurrection had to happen so that he could really begin to reign as, as uh, king of kings and lord of lords. So uh, before we jump into the scripture, I thought I would just share, you know, the, the, the resurrection is one of those one of those events that churches like to try to, at least they did when I was growing up, growing up, try to depict. They would try to, you know, if you, have you ever seen a passion play or like an Easter play and it always ends? I don't know if they do this still, but like in the 80s, um, you know, when I was born. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. When I, in the 80s, uh, in the 70s, you know, they would have these plays and I think people still do it. But then, you know, they would have Jesus, they would do a play and Jesus would be played by, you know, somebody, you know, the lead usher, you know, in the congregation. And, and, you know, they would have him on the cross and then they'd have him buried and then they would have like a big tomb, paper mache tomb, right? With a big paper mache rock. And then at the end of the thing, Jesus would come out and there would be like a smoke machine and lights, you know, and Jesus would come out. Has anybody ever seen a play like that at church? Okay. Um, we used to do one like that at our church when I was a kid growing up. We lived for a little while in Ohio and I know I've told this before, but I, I can't help myself. We lived in Ohio, and we did this passion play. It was called Jesus of Nazareth. And there were a number of weird things that happened throughout the play. Like, for example, one time, um, the guy playing Barabbas. Remember, we talked about Barabbas, who was the thief that was released when Jesus was crucified. Um, the guy playing Barabbas was this uh, farm boy from our community. He was a real pale guy with freckles and kind of strawberry blonde hair. Um, and he just didn't look authentic to first century Palestine. So, you know, they kind of put some makeup on him and put like a dark wig on him and everything. And at one point in the play, you know, he's battling the Roman soldiers. And we had built this pond, you know. And, uh, and so he's battling the Roman soldiers. He dives in the pond. He goes in with, you know, dark curly hair. He comes up a strawberry blonde. His wig is floating across the pond. It was just like, you know, and he finished the scene, but it, you kind of got through out. Um, but there were a few snafus like that, but the biggest one that, that I will always remember is that at the very end of the play, the way we had designed it was there was this massive scaffolding that was sort of hidden by branches and trees and that sort of thing. And the guy playing Jesus would, it, you know, in the dark, because we would do this play at night, um, he would climb up this scaffolding. We had this outdoor amphitheater, like we went all out. Uh, and he would climb up the scaffolding, and then at the very end, like a spotlight would shine on him, and you would see the man playing Jesus up on the scaffolding, looking like he's ascending into heaven. Well, um, there's a little country road that ran along our uh, where we had this theater, and one night, as you know, the spotlight comes up, there's Jesus up on this 50-foot scaffolding. You hear the screech of tires. And uh, a farmer driving by looked over and thought he was seeing the second coming, drove his car off into a ditch. Um, <laughs> um, and so, yeah, he wasn't a big fan of our, of our resurrection story. But, um, but today we want to just talk about the passage. We want to talk about what really happened um, in the book of Mark. So let's start with Mark chapter 16. And we're going to go through the whole chapter today. So I better take off my watch and so I can keep an eye on it. Um, 
Okay, Mark chapter 16, verse 1. It says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So I'm going to just stop for one second and just kind of paint a picture for you. Jesus was crucified on a Friday, on a Friday afternoon. His body was taken down, you know, at sundown on Friday, the Sabbath begins. And so remember, Joseph of Arimathea went and asked Pilate to take down his body. He took the body down off the cross and he took Jesus' body and, and buried Jesus' body in his own tomb. Um, he had gotten some spices. He had bought a linen. And so they had started the anointing process. It wasn't an embalming process. It, was, and it was, didn't have really any functional purpose. It was just something that you did for someone that you loved or someone that you, you know, respected is that you would bury them with these spices and these ointments and aloe and myrrh and you would wrap them up in these um, grave clothes and so forth. So they started to do that on Friday, um, but they, they were not able to complete the burial ritual um, on Friday because Sabbath was coming. And if you're an Orthodox Jew living in the first century, you are not permitted to do anything like this at, after sunset because it's Sabbath. And uh, in fact, we have some friends that still observe Sabbath. They, t- they take it very, they, they observe it in the Orthodox Jewish fashion. They take it very, very seriously. I remember there was a time we went over, my wife and I went over to their house, some friends of ours here in New City. We went over to their house and it was Friday, it was Friday evening, so Sabbath had already started for them. Um, We went over to have dinner, we got over there, there was another couple there, and we got there and there was no dinner on the table. And so I talked, they have a bunch of little boys and so I said to the boys, what's, what's going on? You know, where, you know where's the dinner? Um, <laughs> and uh, so they kind of pulled me aside and confided in me. And they said, the breaker went off in our house. And since it's Sabbath, we're not permitted to turn it back on. And because they had the, they had the heat going on their stove. And the heat, as long as it was going before Sabbath, could continue going through Sabbath. But if it clicked off, uh, it was against the Sabbath instructions to turn it back on. It was just against their law. So I said, um, hmm, um, where's your breaker box? And, uh, and they're like looking at me like with big hopeful eyes, like, really? And one of the boys says, but we're not allowed to ask, even ask you to turn on the breaker. That also breaks the Sabbath. And I said, nobody's asked me. I'm going to volunteer to go down and turn the breaker box on because I'm hungry and I'm, down, I'm, I'm ready to eat. So anyway, um, so the Gentile saves the Sabbath on that day. Um, it was a delicious meal. But uh, point being is they were not permitted to do anything at the Sabbath. So on Friday night after Jesus died and he was being buried, Sabbath was coming. They got done what they could do and they left the rest. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea had the tomb, the, the stone rolled into place. Um, certain wealthier folks could afford to have the extra carving on the stone to make it round. And there would be a rut in front of the tomb. They would have it rolled into place. It would be a very heavy stone. And so that's what they did. Another point that I just want to make real quickly on here is that this is the third time Mark has named the women who were the witnesses to the death, burial, and resurrection. Why does he do that? Because what he is saying, these are, the, these are essentially citations. These are footnotes in Mark's gospel. He's saying, hey, 
I'm giving you the names of the people who saw it happen. If you want to confirm or verify, go talk to Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, or Salome, or any of their family members. You can go and talk to them. They will confirm the story. This is not what you do if you're writing sort of a legend or a parable or you, you, you know, Mark repeats these women's names three times in this passage. Okay, so the women come early on. So after the Sabbath, Saturday, Sabbath ends on Saturday night. That night they would have gone and they would have bought some spices. And then Sunday morning, they, they are on their way to the tomb. Okay, verse three. And they were saying to one another, the women were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Quickly, just let me interject here. The women were not going to the tomb to see if Jesus had resurrected. Okay? They were not going there with the anticipation that Jesus was being raised from the dead. Over and over and over towards the end of Mark, Jesus keeps saying, Hey, guess what? I'm going to be killed, and in three days, I will raise up. And he keeps telling his disciples that, and he keeps telling his followers that. But interestingly, no one believes him. The disciples are not back at the house wondering if Jesus had risen from the dead. The women were not going to the tomb to see if Jesus had risen from the dead. They did not anticipate, they did not presuppose, they did not believe, they were not expecting Jesus to have risen from the dead. And that's, I think, an important point just from a historical perspective because, you know, you, you know one might argue that if they really believed that was going to happen, then they would invent a story where that happened. But Mark's, Mark makes it clear, no one thought that was going to happen. Okay? So they go on their way um, to, to anoint a dead body. And they find that the stone had been rolled away. Verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. Uh, I think alarmed is probably a gentle word for what they were. I think they were probably terrified. Uh, there's, you know, it's one of those moments where if you, if you go home, say you go home to your house, and when you left it was locked. And you go home and the door is ajar. You know, that, you know what that does to your heart? You start going, wait a minute, this is not right. The women, early in the morning, walking up to the tomb, the stone is rolled away. Um, and um, in some of the other Gospels, it, it's clarified that this person is a messenger uh, of God. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him points to the area there in the tomb where Jesus would have been laid. They would have carved out a shelf in the inside of this tomb. Uh, but go tell his disciples and Peter, remember that he adds that little clause, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The messenger kind of takes a moment to give him a little dig and say, hey, Jesus kept telling you this was going to happen. And now he's done it. Uh, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized him. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. 
Um, verse 9. Now when he rose, Jesus rose early on the first day of the week. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. So that tells us what the disciples are doing. They're mourning and weeping the loss of their leader, of their rabbi, of their master. Um, again, not anticipating his resurrection. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. The disciples don't believe her testimony. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And this is described more in one of the other Gospels. Mark's Gospel is the most terse and the most sort of efficient. And he kind of gets to the facts. And uh, this is this where he appears to other people. It's spelled out in some of the other Gospels. Um, and they went back and told the rest. But they did not believe them. So now the disciples the, you know, keep hearing, Jesus is risen, Jesus, we've seen him, they keep not believing. Um, afterward, well let me just say this, you know, the, the, there, there may be some who would say, well you know those first century folks, they were gullible, they believed all kinds of crazy things, you know, of course they believed it. You know, they were told that Jesus raised from the dead, they believed it. Obviously this verse says no, they didn't believe it. The first century, the people in the first century had a very, very clear and stark, probably more than us, understanding of what death meant. Because they would see it up close. They would, and they knew that when somebody died, they were not raised from the dead. They did not come back to life. In fact, the, the first century Jews did not have this concept of, they, they were not anticipating the resurrection of the dead. They were anticipating that at some future time, uh, well, half of them were and half of them weren't, but the, the ones that believed in the resurrection believed that at some future time, at the end of all time, then there would be a resurrection. But they did not anticipate that there would be a resurrection now in their present life. Um, and they certainly did not anticipate that a man would be divine. That would have been anathema to the Jewish thought. So, they did not believe it. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Um, if you have, a, you know, if the resurrection presents an intellectual challenge for you, you're in good company, all right? All of his disciples struggled with this belief. This is the crux of the Christian faith. This was, for me, the hurdle to becoming a Christian. Um, and a lot of people, including his early followers, struggled with this idea that he was actually raised from the dead. Okay? And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, or by my authority, they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Jesus is promising his apostles and his disciples an, a, a, a level of supernatural empowerment that is almost beyond imagination. And he's describing these miraculous events that they will do. Um, and then if you read the book of Acts, which I strongly encourage you to do, it's a, it's a record of the apostles going out and doing precisely that. Um, so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, 
was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. That's the end of the book of Mark. <laughs> um, so it's, a, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing way to end the story. Jesus says, Jesus rises from the dead, he commissions his apostles, and then he ascends and is seated at the right hand of, of God, which just means that, that he is empowered. Um, uh, and, it's, uh, and, and that it, it means that he has authority. So I won't go into, um, if, there's a, if there are questions in your heart about the resurrection, about the fact of the resurrection as a historical event, um, I'm just going to briefly touch on it, and I'm going to recommend some, some books for you to read, because I just think that that is an area that is um, very important, and it's valuable for you to explore it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning, um, but, but I'll just recommend a few um, uh, books, and I'll just talk about it briefly. Um, so there are some sort of, if you're doing apologetics, there are, there's some evidence uh, for the resurrection um, that's extra-biblical, evidence outside of the Bible that may incline you to take the, the story seriously if you're, if you're a skeptic or a doubter. Um, one is, uh, and a lot of people refer to this, the fact that all four Gospels say that it was women who first saw the resurrection. Um, and we've talked about this before, but in the first century, both in Roman and in Jewish uh, um, uh, law, women were not allowed to testify in court. Their, their testimony was deemed um, to be not credible. And so if you are writing a story where you want to compel or convince people that Jesus rose from the dead, then you don't say that a bunch of women saw him rise from the dead because the first century audience is going to already have a bias against what you're saying. You understand what I'm saying? They're going to say, well, you know, but women saw it, so we can't. In fact, one of the early, early skeptics uh, um, of, and one of the, who, who wrote against the resurrection very early on, that was one of his arguments. He said, well, you can't believe in the resurrection because it was women that reported him, you know, risen from the dead. Um, so if you're writing religious propaganda, then you don't write it like this. Does that make sense? Uh, the only reason that you would say women saw him risen from the dead first is if women actually saw him risen from the dead first. That'd be the only logical reason to do that. Um, another sort of piece that may factor into your thought process is the martyrdom of the believers. So all of these people, it's very clear that from the very, very outset, the believers, the followers of Jesus believed that they had seen the risen Christ and they were willing to die to proclaim that. Um, so that is some indication of their, you know, it, it's not like they died for an idea. They died for what they believed to be a, an historical fact. They claimed that they saw the risen Christ and all you would have had to do was say, okay, I didn't see him and then you don't die. But they were, they, were not, they were not dying for a belief. They were dying for what they, for a fact. They were dying because they said, hey, I saw him. I can't tell you I didn't see him. I saw him. Um, another point that you may want to consider is it, this whole controversy could have been quelled very easily if the Romans or someone else had, or the Sanhedrin or whatever had produced the corpse. 
and just said, look, he's not risen. Here's his corpse, just as he was crucified, and here he is. So all of you crazy, wacky Christian folks, cool it, okay? That didn't happen. Um, and, uh, and, and finally, um, for, the, for the argument that people would say, well, maybe it was a metaphor, maybe it was an analogy or whatever, it's very clear that the very earliest Christians believed that it happened. And I'm just going to read you a quick passage from 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 1 through 8. Now, this is Paul, the Apostle Paul, who, as we know, can, became a Christian. Um, his name was Saul, and he persecuted Christians, and then he became a Christian because of a vision that he saw. Um, he wrote in about 53 A.D., Jesus was crucified around 33 A.D., so this would have been about 20 years later. He wrote a letter. He was in what is now Turkey, uh, and he wrote a letter, and he sent it to the church in Corinth, and it circulated among the churches. And historically, this letter is dated at around 53 to 57 A.D., so 20 to 25 years after the crucifixion. And this is what Paul says. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you were saved, he says, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And here it is. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, Cephas is Peter, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom, Paul says, are still living, though some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born or one born out of time. Uh, so Paul is saying, listen, folks, I preached to you that Jesus died. I preached to you that Jesus was raised from the dead. And if you want confirmation of that, there are about 500 people who will tell you that they saw him. If you want to know for yourself, go talk to them. Um, this would have been written at a time when the people who had seen Jesus raised were alive. If this letter, you know, if, if no one had seen Jesus alive or no one claimed to have seen Jesus alive, this letter would have just been laughable. Um, but it was written at a time when there, there were witnesses, eyewitnesses still alive, and Paul says, go ask them. So there, is a, there are a lot of historical indications that the early church actually believed that they actually saw Jesus raised from the dead. Um, and as I mentioned, there are a few books that I would uh, commend to you. One is a book by N.T. Wright, who's a really bright scholar and theologian, um, and his book is called The Resurrection of the Son of God, and he writes other books. And if you go on YouTube and type in N.T. Wright, uh, you will find a lot of videos where he's always speaking and he's very very articulate guy. Another one that I love and a book that I found to be really helpful for me from an intellectual position and helping me to orient my mind around the idea of the resurrection and the, and the whole uh, concept of Christianity 
was a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, um, and a number of you are familiar with that book. Um, for a more sort of apologetics look at it, there's a book, there's a little tiny volume called The Case for Easter by Lee Strobel, uh, which is a, also, I think, a helpful book. So, um, there are some books that you can get into about that aspect, the, the apologetics, the historicity of it. But I want to talk just for a couple more minutes today, um, not about the historicity or anything like that. I just want to talk about the meaning of the resurrection. I want to talk about the ramifications. What does it mean? What does it mean if the resurrection happened? How does it affect you? What does it do in your world? What does it do to your life? What does it do to my life? Um, and so I want to just talk a few little points about it. And number one is this. The resurrection redeems your past. The resurrection redeems your past. Uh, Paul says in that same verse, in, in that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ hasn't been raised, he says, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So the, the cross is what is, the, you know, the shedding of the blood is the sacrifice that Christ makes for us. But if he remains dead, then he's just like any other guy and it doesn't do anything for us. It's the resurrection that seals our redemption. The resurrection seals our redemption. Um, I don't know about you, and you don't have to raise your hand, but just maybe reflect in your mind. Does anybody have anything in their past that they're not totally thrilled about? I mean, I don't, because I know. I'm just... Uh, no, I, I, we all have things in our past that are regrettable. Some things that are highly regrettable. You know, we have disappointments. We have failures. We misspoke. We said something we shouldn't have said. We acted out of turn. We said something to our spouse that we shouldn't have said. We said something to our kids that we shouldn't have said. We hurt people. We hurt ourselves. We damaged relationships with people we love. We've all done this. This is all of us. This describes all of us. This describes all of our existence. Um, Woody Allen says, My one regret in life is that I am not someone else. Uh, no. <laughs> but, but we all have these things in our lives that we just go, ah, man, that was dumb. That was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I, you know, when I was a single guy living in L.A., not a Christian, not constrained by family, not constrained by the morals or ethics of the Christian faith, there would be times that I would wake up and go, oh, my gosh, what? what? Oh, really? Did I do that? Did I say that? You know? And you just go, ah, oh, and you feel shame and you feel guilt and you feel burdened, uh, you know, because of things in your life that you regret. Um, in fact, that was one of, for me, the hurdles to becoming a Christian was saying, oh, how can I become a Christian when I've got 15 years of stuff in my past that's just like not Christian? How do I, how do, I do that? That's where the resurrection comes in. Listen to what G, uh, the, the, the um, messenger says to the women in verse 7. Go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going before you into Galilee. Why did he say and Peter? Peter is a disciple. He could have just said, go tell the disciples that Jesus is going to before you into Galilee. 
The reason he said, and Peter, is because if the women had gone to the disciples and said, Jesus is going before you into Galilee, a messenger of God told us that all the disciples should come and see him, Peter is going to say, well, yeah, he said all the disciples, but obviously he doesn't mean me. Because if you recall, the night before his crucifixion, I denied knowing him. I, I denied knowing anything about him. I cursed him. So when he says the disciples, he means, you know, everyone who really is still in good graces with him. But the messenger says, no, go tell the disciples and Peter. The redemption of the, 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 the resurrection redeems Peter's actions. It redeems those things that he did and said before the resurrection. And that's why the messenger says, go tell the disciples and Peter. I want Peter to know that not only is he accepted, but he's going to lead the church. Because great sin brings about great forgiveness, which brings about great gratitude, great humility, and great leadership. So Jesus says, you're a sinner. You're the worst of all of them. I'm, I'm going to need you to lead us. Isn't that amazing? Verse 9 says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first. Who did he appear to first? Mary Magdalene, comma, from whom he had cast out seven demons. It makes a point to tell us that Mary Magdalene was a very troubled person had been a very troubled person, had allowed a lot of darkness and evil and destruction to enter into her heart and mind. And it points that out here. It could have introduced Mary Magdalene earlier in the text and described who she was and what she had done. It doesn't. It waits until this moment to say, that Mark waits until now to say, oh, by the way, the first person to whom he appeared was not only a woman, but it was also a woman from whom he had cast out seven demons. The redemption, the, the, the resurrection redeems your past. That's the point. It redeems your past. It restores who you are. It restores who God has actually made you to be. It brings that change in you. The act does, not you. So it's not about... Christianity is not about straightening things up and getting your ducks in a row and starting to, you know, walk right and do right. No. The faith is about this act that redeems your past and now to catch up with to catch up with the person who you really are, you get your ducks in a row and you start straightening yourself out. But it's not because you're going to do that to change who you are. You've already been changed. You've already been transformed. And now you're just catching up with who you really are. Okay. Um, there's a song, and this is where we have this image on there, that uh, Leonard Cohen song called "Bird on the Wire," and uh, I just this, this was a very moving song to me um, when I was not a Christian, um, but sort of on my way. And it's and the, the lyrics say, "Like a bird on a wire, like a drunk in a midnight choir, I have tried in my way to be free. Like a baby stillborn, like a beast with its horn, I have torn everyone who reached out to me." The, the gospel is about redeeming that person. 
that person who has wounded themselves, who have wounded other, who has wounded other people, this is the person that the redeem, that the that the uh, resurrection redeems. Listen to this real quickly, and we'll move on. Romans six eight through eleven says, "For we know that since Christ was raised, since Christ was raised from the dead, death no longer has mastery over him. In the same way, count yourselves dead." To sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So your life is dead to sin. That part of your life is dead. It was buried in the tomb. And when the resurrect, when Jesus raised from the dead, we have a new life in Him. First Peter 1:3 says, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A new birth through the resurrection. I mean, th- this is a huge spiritual concept. That you as a person who is alive, who has lived, who has done stuff, thought stuff, said stuff. You have an opportunity to be a new person. A new birth. A new creature. Your regrets, your disappointments, your shame, your failures... Your guilt, all of that, if you are in Christ, is buried in the tomb. That's buried in the tomb. So if you're walking around with it, you're walking around with an imaginary weight. Because it's not real, it's been buried. There is therefore now no condemnation to him that is in Christ Jesus. Alright? Does that make sense? Is that coming? Alright, I'll leave it alone. Because I can can repeat this over and over. Uh, Okay, number two, the resurrection empowers your present. The resurrection empowers your present. And I'm going to go back to Peter for this one, okay? I want you to look at this. I want you to think about this. I'm just going to describe a couple of events that happened in Peter's life. So we know that on at Passover, when Jesus was asked outside of Pilate's, uh, outside of uh, Caiaphas' house, whether he knows Jesus, Peter says, no, don't know him. You kind of look like a guy who knows him. Nope, not me. No, you really, you know, your voice, your accent, you're a Nazarene. I know you're a guy who follows blankety blank. No, I don't. Okay. Beep, beep, beep on the sound. Um, So here he is at Passover denying Jesus. Doesn't have anything to do with him. Doesn't know him. Never heard of him. All right. That's That's the feast of Passover. In Judaism, 50 days after the Feast of Passover is a feast called Pentecost. Penta, 55. Passover happens, Pentecost happens 50 days later. Okay? If you read the book of Acts, at Pentecost, Peter is standing before crowds of thousands of people, all of whom have come to Jerusalem to worship, and, and to observe the feast. And Peter, uh, and, and the, the, the uh, people with Peter, the followers, are proclaiming the gospel. If you read the book of Acts, it's amazing. They're proclaiming the gospel in the language of the people who have come to, to observe uh, the feast. And Peter stands up before thousands of people, and he preaches this sermon, and his sermon is very simple. We have followed Jesus for three years. We know him well. 
He was crucified. He was buried. He rose from the dead. We saw him. He has imbued us with power. And now he has ascended to the glory of God the Father. And you can enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And then Peter does something that I love. He uses a little bit of visual imagery. He points to the tomb of David. And he says, David was our patriarch. David was a king David, was a prophet. We know David. David is buried, and we know where he's buried, and you can go, and his body is in that tomb. But Jesus' tomb is empty. Jesus' tomb doesn't have anyone in it. And Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, preaches the gospel. What What makes a guy go from cowering in a courtyard, hidden in the shadows, quivering, afraid of Caiaphas's maid. You know, remember the teenage girl comes down and says, yeah, no, it was you. And he's like, ah! You know, what makes, what, what happens for a guy to be cowering from a teenage girl to preaching in front of thousands, proclaiming that Jesus has risen from the dead? Whether you are, you, you know, if you're a complete skeptic and complete doubter, I, I get that. I really do. But something happened. Something very dramatic and powerful happened to transform that guy into that guy. Something happened that empowered him, that imbued him with strength. And listen to this. This faith went from a small huddled um, group of people who were pariah even to the slightly larger group of people who were oppressed by a Roman force. I mean, this is a marginal group. This is a very marginal group. And the other thing is, there there was messianic fervor at this time. Jesus was not the only guy to come along and say, hey, I'm the Messiah. The history tells us that there were were dozens of these guys. There were a lot of guys who would come and say, hey, by the way, I'm from the lineage of David. I'm the Messiah. You should follow me. And they would get a little group of people following them. And then, you know, if they got too many people following them, the Romans would kill them. And then all the followers would go... Oh, bummer. Okay, I guess he was not the one. And they would go home and go back to work. Right? That didn't happen here. Within a few, within just a few years, this message had spread all through Asia, all through, into Africa, everywhere. It had just gone everywhere. Within 300 years, it had swept through the entire Roman Empire. That doesn't prove that Jesus rose from the dead, but it's something that you got to consider. Something powerful happened. And these people's lives. It wasn't Jesus' teachings. It wasn't Jesus's, you know, Jesus, the, the, the golden rule. Jesus didn't make that up. That had been around. That's a, that's a the, the rule of reciprocity. That's not what like boom. Oh my gosh, that's the greatest thing ever. We should all become Christians. No, his teachings are extremely important. But that's not what transformed the lives of the people who follow him. Seeing him resurrected, being empowered by that resurrection. That is, what, that is what changed the face of the world and turned it upside down. Some of us are still over here in Passover land. Some of us are still afraid, struggling, uncertain. We don't know what to make of anything. And to get from here to Pentecost where we have where we imbue, are imbued with the power to 
speak out loud, to speak the truth, to stand up for what's right, you've got to pass through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So the resurrection will empower you. It will transform you. And the last thing I'm going to say about that, and I'm going to wrap this up really quickly, but the resurrection is where these two worlds collide. So there's this sort of supernatural world, this metaphysical world, and then there's this gritty, earthly, dirty world, right? At the resurrection, these two worlds overlap. And something that is supernatural and metaphysical, and that something that can't happen on this world, happens. And that's what happened at the resurrection. Two worlds collided and changed everything. Shattered the, shattered the preconceptions of the people that were living at that time. Okay. Number three, the resurrection depicts your future. The resurrection demonstrates, anticipates, discloses, informs what your future is. The science fiction writer David Gerald says, Life is hard, then you die, then they throw dirt in your face, then the worms eat you. Be grateful it happens in that order. Um, <laughs> that, that is the worldview of someone who does not fathom, contemplate the resurrection, right? There's a course at Yale, a philosophy course, and it's titled simply Death. Um, philosophy 176, if you look up the course description, uh, it says that the professor says, there is one thing I can be sure of, I am going to die, but what am I to make of that fact? This course will examine a number of issues that arise once we begin to reflect on our own mortality. The possibility that death may not actually be the end is considered. <laughs> um, are we, in some sense, immortal? How should the knowledge of what I, of that I am going to die affect the way I live my life? I love it. I mean, I love that at Yale, they're sitting there going, is it possible that there's, you know, eternal life? You know? Because this is not, this is a problem. This is a question that has haunted people forever. doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, highly educated, not highly educated, where you come from. What happens to us? Who are we? What does this all mean? Where is this going? And Jesus' resurrection says, here's where it's going. There is life after death. You know, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees at the time of Jesus' life debated this issue. This was a legitimate issue. The Pharisees who were, the Sadducees who were observant Jews said, there is no life after death. This is it. And the Pharisee says, no, there is life after death. There's resurrection. And if you remember, we talked about this once where Jesus goes, these guys are actually right. You know, Jesus had problems with the Pharisees, but he goes, they're right on this one. And then his, his resurrection demonstrates that for them and demonstrates that for us. So this life is only the beginning for you. Whether you are young or old, whether you are sick or healthy, whoever you are, wherever you are, this life is the beginning. This life is not the end. This life is the beginning. I may have given this example once before, but just like a little baby inside of a womb who cannot possibly fathom anything beyond that experience that that infant is having at that time, that baby cannot possibly fathom what it must be like to be outside of the womb and to be a, you know, a conscious, sentient human being. It can't fathom that, right? But we know that those babe, that baby will be born, and that baby does become 
a conscious, it becomes us. And then we would look back and go, wow, there's no way I could have known that this existed when I was that. That's where we're at. Now we're here, and guess what? Death is the next passage into that next stage. Eternity doesn't begin at death. We're in eternity now. This is the beginning. We're just getting started. This is the beginning. And for those of us who have lost loved ones, mom, dad, brother, sister, daughter, son, this, the, the, the resurrection says, it's not over. The resurrection says, there's more. There is eternal life for you, and there's eternal life for me. Let this resurrection redeem your past today. Let it redeem you. Let it empower you today. Let it strengthen you and give you power and a sense of meaning and mission and calling. And most importantly, maybe not most importantly, but finally, let it describe, let it clarify for you what's going to happen next. Jesus said, and I'm going to close with this, John 16, 33, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Death is defeated. The grave is defeated. O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? Jesus is an example of where you and I are going. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much.